0: Father in heaven, I just uh, want to pause and thank you for a chance to to wake up this morning, uh, to meet with friends, to open up your word, to learn from you. And, um, and Father, we're grateful for the fact that um, we know that you love us and that you care for our every need. Father, I thank you that uh, even uh, the hairs on our head are numbered by you. And that Father, uh, your thoughts of us are uh, greater than the sand uh, on the seashore, as psalm one thirty nine tells us, and that uh, and that Father, your love is so amazing that yet while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, and so we rejoice in your goodness and your grace, and I thank you, Father, for what we learned this week as we looked at scripture and who the Holy Spirit is and what he's done for us and what he accomplishes in and through our lives. Father, thank you for the gift of your spirit which lives within us. And I pray, Lord, we learn more about him today. I pray, Father, that you would challenge our theology where it needs to be challenged or affirm it where it needs to be affirmed. And I pray, Father, that you would um, take um, what is potentially a difficult um, and controversial topic and that you'd provide clarity for us this morning. And uh, most of all, Lord, I pray that um, our lives would be characterized um, by the filling of your Spirit as we walk in uh, humility and obedience to your Word. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, come on in, fellas. <clears throat> Let these guys come on in, grab a seat. Well, listen, this... Um, this chapter, and uh, this subject, the thought of trying to cover this in a 15 or 20 minute time period feels a little bit like theological malpractice to me. All right, um, I, I don't. It doesn't sit real, uh, real easy with me. Um, and uh, if there is such a thing as medical malpractice, there's probably such a thing as theological malpractice because all I can do is, is touch the surface here. But what I want to do is just very generally speaking, I want to answer three questions. And the first question is, who is the Holy Spirit? Some people talk and define the Holy Spirit as a force, okay, but not as a person. And, um, and I want to talk a little bit about that and how the Bible defines the Holy Spirit. Uh, secondly, I want to talk about what is the role of the Holy Spirit? W- what is his role? What does he do for us? What are the works of the Holy Spirit? And then I want to just touch on briefly, depending on how much time we have, I want to just touch on briefly the difference between um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because this is a controversial subject, which there are a lot of different ideas um, out there and some confusion out there. And it really um, should not be uh, as confusing or as controversial um, as it is. Just there's there's a lot of different views, and I want to try to clarify that as well. So, real quickly, again, the, the person of the Holy Spirit, you remember as we talked about the Trinity and how we define the Trinity, there are three things we need to uh, talk about, three things we need to mention in order to clearly articulate the truth of the Trinity. And those three words, if you will, are unity, equality, um, and distinction. Unity, equality, and distinction. And when we speak of the Trinity, when we speak of the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit... What we are saying is, is that, that God is both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that they are unique, they are or distinct rather, that they are equal and they are united. That God is one. And the Holy Spirit is not a force, but rather is a the third person of the Trinity. That the Holy Spirit is, in fact, God. And that is how Scripture refers to him as, is God. Look with me at um, at Acts chapter 5. You'll see here on the screen, this is a classic text um, which uh, shows how God or how the Holy Spirit is referred to as being God. And the context here is um, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It says this, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so we just take and we look here at... Um, a very clear passage where Peter saying, hey, to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to lie to God. And so and there's several places in Scripture where it refers to the Holy Spirit as being God, this one being the most explicit. But not only do we find this, but we also see when um, the Bible speaks of the attributes of the Holy Spirit, they are only attributes that are God like. The Spirit shares the same divine attributes as the Father and the Son. Notice that the Spirit is is, uh, described as being omnipresent, that He is everywhere at all times, that He's all-knowing, that He's omniscient, that He is eternal, that He's holy, that He's without sin, that He is sovereign, that He is all-powerful. All attributes that only could be ascribed to God. And so the Bible clearly makes the case that the Holy Spirit is more than a force, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would have you believe, but instead is the third member of the Trinity, that the Holy Spirit is God. In the very same sense that God the Father is God, God the Son is God, so too is the Holy Spirit. So what is the work or what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, very quickly, let me just list some. We know from Scripture that the Holy Spirit was active in creation. That he inspired the authors of the Bible. He empowered the conception of Christ. He convicts of sin. He regenerates, He changes our hearts. He brings us to a point of, of repentance, an understanding of grace. He counsels us. He offers assurance of salvation. He teaches us. He intercedes on our behalf when we pray. He resurrected Christ from the dead. He calls us to serve. He seals our salvation. In other words, He makes our salvation secure. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we cannot lose our salvation, as some incorrectly teach. He indwells the hearts of believers. He works within the church. He empowers us. He guides us. He baptizes all believers into the body of Christ, and he fills us. Now, it's these last two that, um, as I said at the beginning, I want to try to uh, bring a little bit of clarity, because I there's confusion around this, and it can be very dangerous. So what is baptism of the Holy Spirit, and what is the filling of the Holy Spirit? How are they different? Well, very uh, simply, baptism of the Holy Spirit is a once-and-for-all experience. Let me say that again. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is a once and for all experience that happens at the moment of conversion. You'll see here I define it as the work whereby the Spirit of God places the believer into the union with Christ and into union with other believers in the body of Christ at the moment of salvation. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells you, you are placed into a larger family, into the body of Christ. And you are placed in Christ. And this is what the Bible is referring to when it talks about baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a once and for all deal at the moment of conversion. The filling of the Holy Spirit, though, is a repeated experience. It's a spiritual state where the Holy Spirit is fulfilling all that He came to do in the heart and life of the individual believer. This it um, can happen every day as we yield ourselves to God's Spirit, His Word, and His will in our lives. We allow Him to fill our hearts, to empower us to live a life of obedience and righteousness. Notice that never in Scripture, never in Scripture, is the Christian exhorted to be baptized by the Spirit. Do you know that? We're never exhorted to go and be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Whereas we are commanded to quench not the Spirit and grieve not the Holy Spirit, but be filled with the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit. See, baptism, just the word baptism alone, is used in many different contexts. We talk about water baptism which is the right response, when somebody believes in Christ, they are to be baptized, they are to go and publicly declare their faith and their, their belief in Christ and what he's done for them, and they are baptized in the water, which is different than spirit baptism, which is what happens at the moment of salvation when we trust in Christ and God's spirit live with, lives within our heart, which is different than John's baptism, right? John's baptism, John the Baptist, which identified the people of God, the Jews at that time, with um, a life of repentance and following um, uh, Yahweh, the God of of the Old Testament, the God God of Israel. So baptism is used in many different contexts. And where it gets a little more confusing is when you then turn to the book of Acts. And what I simply want to say here, because of the short amount of time, is that the Uh, Beginning of your notebook, as we're working through this um, the first week, he did a really good job of talking in there about the importance of knowing how to read your Bible. And if you remember the steps that he gave you in there and the steps that we're following along with, is he talks about the importance of understanding the meaning of the text to the biblical audience. That's the first and foremost thing. What did the text mean when the author originally wrote? Then he talks about the river of differences between what was happening then, and what is happening today. How theologically, historically, culturally, how are things different from what was happening in the time of the New Testament believers, and how are things different today? And it's our responsibility to figure that out. Then he talks about the bridge of theological principles, and then finally the contemporary application. My point in saying this is is that the book of Acts is... Um, When you read it, you have to ask yourself, is this normative or is it formative? Is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? In other words, when you do read to the book of Acts, namely chapters uh, 2, 10 and 19, and you see this work of the Holy Spirit... Are we to look and see this is what happened during the time of the New Testament believers? Therefore, it should be true in our case today and just jump over here. Or do we follow that discipline that he said um, of how to correctly read the Bible? And you look and say, hey, this was the case of what was happening in the lives of the New Testament believers. We have to understand the river of differences. We have to understand that this is a transitional, pivotal book, that it is not normative, but it is formative, that it's not always um, prescriptive, but descriptive. Understand the universal theological principles that are to come from that and then apply those to today. All right. So that's saying a lot. But let me just say it like this. It um, when trying to discern God's will for your life. Would you argue that the way to do that is to take a fleece, as Gideon did, and throw it out in your yard and wait to see if it turns wet? Throw it out again and wait to see if it turns dry? Well, some of you, all of us, have looked to God to say, Hey, Lord, what would you have me do in this circumstance? We've all done that. But I doubt very many of us would take a, have taken a fleece and thrown it out into our yard. Why? Why? Well, because we know that just because Gideon did it doesn't mean, therefore, that's what we should do. Now, there's a principle there that we are to look to God for his, his guidance. But just because he did it, it doesn't mean it, it's prescriptive that we should do it. It's just descriptive, and that's what he did. But when we read that story, we understand that God's not saying to each of us, this is the way you understand my will. And as ludicrous, as crazy as it may seem to think, hey, this is how I understand God's will. I just throw out a a fleece. It's just as inaccurate to look at the book of Acts and go, this is what happened in the book of Acts. So therefore, this is exactly what I should do over here. No, what do we do? We look at what happened in the book of Acts. We understand the theological universal principle and we apply it to our lives. Okay, and so um, just real quickly. Write down just Acts 2, 10, and 19. Just write 2, 10, and 19. And what I want to say about this, because this, this, um, because of the confusion between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit um, is so prevalent and so uh, misapplied and abused, what ends up happening, gang, is people will argue that um, if you feel um, uh, less empowered, less spiritual than you want to feel, that what you need to do is seek a second blessing of the Holy Spirit, that you need more of the Holy Spirit. And they speak of baptism of the Spirit, the second blessing. And where this is so dangerous is this a um, misinterpretation and application of the book of Acts. And what they'll do, usually, is they'll look at Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. And I just want you to write down those, two, those three chapters numbers so that you can, you're on your own time, look and, and understand what's, what's happening there. But real simply and succinctly, in Acts chapter 2, what you see is a unique one-time occurrence where the Holy Spirit, um, at the time of Pentecost, is for the first time revealing himself and indwelling within the hearts of believers. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. That for the very first time, the people of God are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Because no longer is the Holy Spirit going to live within the temple or reveal himself to the tabernacle like he did in the Old Testament. But instead, Jesus promised one would come who would live within their hearts, affirming what God promised in the New Covenant, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And what we see in Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of that. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within the heart of believers. In Acts chapter 10, what we see is, is that the Jewish people who were following and who believed in Christ, are recognizing for the first time Peter, namely, because he's visiting a man named Cornelius in a Gentile home, he recognizes that the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius. And God uses this unique period to show Peter and the Jewish believers that, guess what, the same Holy Spirit that, was, that indwells the, heart, the hearts of you, Jewish believers, also indwells the hearts of the Gentiles. In other words, Peter, the gospel is not just for the Jew. The gospel is for the Gentile. And so you see in Acts chapter 11, Peter goes and reports this. And he uh, um, reports how astonished and how amazing it is that Christ did not just die for the Jew, but he died for the world. And you see the unfolding and the realization of God's people going Wow, look at the goodness of God. Look at his spirit and how he indwells the hearts of of all people who choose to trust in Christ. It's not normative for today or prescriptive for today. And then in Acts chapter 19, Paul comes to Ephesus. And it's here that the folks in Ephesus, they have been baptized into John's baptism. Okay, But they have yet to understand and receive the gospel and receive God's grace. And so Paul just simply explains the gospel, and they trust in Christ, and they're baptized. So I know that may sound overwhelming or confusing to you, but I want to challenge you and I want to warn you against those who would tell you that what you need is more of the Holy Spirit. You don't need more of the Holy Spirit you need to yield to the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But at baptism, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit. You are sealed. You are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And as you have probably heard Todd say many times before, the question is is not how much of the Holy Spirit do you have, but how how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? And so um, our theology matters, gang, because it is so dangerous when you hear people sit down with others and say, hey, if you feel like you're in a spiritual rut, well, that's because you haven't received the second blessing. So what you need to do is, is go after this experiential um, activity that's usually identified with the speaking of tongues. And what they do is they go to Acts 2, 10 and 19 and try to explain that, and they rip the meaning out and say this is normative, not formative. They say it's prescriptive, not descriptive. They don't do the work of the, theolo- of the theology and they go, see, it happen there. It should happen here. And that's dangerous. All right. So if this is a subject that interests you or I confused you, I would love nothing more than to sit down with you at some point and explain this because it's that important. What I hope and my prayer is is as you get in your groups, that you guys will talk about what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit for you today? How can you yield yourself to God's will for your life? That's what's important. So that other people sit there and will say, man, that is a man of God. There's something different about him. We can understand all the theology in the world between baptism of the Holy Spirit and filling of the Holy Spirit. Right? We can have all that right up here intellectually. But what God's concerned about is, is how much of us does the Holy Spirit have? And that's what we need to challenge ourselves to, um, today.